The the reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians and it's chapter 11. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, and nor do the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Amen. Thank you so much, Tina, for reading that for us this morning. Well, for the last few weeks, I've, uh, I've just seen chapter 11 looming. And uh, on occasions, I was tempted to get a sick note from the doctor for this morning and uh, just uh, allow you guys to it, you know, sort of, uh, Dan, you know, Dan could have stepped in at the last minute. <laughs> but he is my son-in-law. Um, when we are reading 1 Corinthians, we mustn't forget that um, we're not reading an essay here and we're not reading a theological article but we are reading a letter, a letter from an apostle to a real-life church in Greece 2,000 years ago. And as we've seen in the past, the past number of weeks now, that the church in Corinth had lots and lots of problems. There were divisions, there were sex scandals, there were courtroom dramas, there were marriage problems and concerns over questionable practices. And now we're getting to chapter 11, and chapter 11 is the start of four chapters here where we see yet more problems. And the problems here that the Corinthian church was uh, encountering were problems when they came together for, for worship. And in these four chapters, we've probably got the most difficult, or amongst the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to interpret and for us to try to understand for our lives today. And these passages have caused far more heat than light over the last 2,000 years of church history, such as the place of women in the church, spiritual gifts, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, uh, head coverings, speaking in tongues and prophecy. We've got all of this to come over the next few weeks. And in chapter 11, the subject that we have there is proper attitudes and conduct in worship. Now, I know that many people have read the, the words of Paul, the words from this chapter, the words that Tina read to us a moment ago, and they have read those words and said, well, Paul must be a chauvinist, uh, a misogynist, that Paul had such a low view of women, said one person, and suggested that it, if he had a wife, then he might not have been so forthright. Well, what I want to do today is ask some, uh, some questions. And the three questions I've got are these. Firstly, we need to look at how women were viewed in the ancient world. Secondly, how women were viewed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then thirdly, we need to ask the question of what was happening in Corinth that caused Paul to write this chapter in the way that he did. So let's start by attempting to understand something of how women were generally viewed in the ancient world. Well, in the Greek-Roman world, uh, a woman was under the authority of her father until she was married, and when she was married, she then became under the authority of her husband. She was not allowed to testify in court, she couldn't inherit any property, and she couldn't claim the rights of education. In the ancient world, People such as Plato, who believed in reincarnation, taught that the, the fate of a bad man would be to reinc be reincarnated as a woman. <laughs> such was his disrespect for the, the female sex. 
ancient philosopher Aristotle regarded the female as a kind of mutilated male. And he also wrote, females are imperfect males accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. (laughs) So now you know. (laughs) In the Hebrew world, at the time of Jesus, it was similar. And a woman had no rights of education. And rabbis said that it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. There's lots of gasps here from, from the women that are gasps. And many of you know this, that the Jewish men had a daily prayer. Blessed be God who has not made me a heathen, a slave or a woman. Then we have Jewish historian Josephus, a contemporary of Christ, who said that the woman is inferior to the man in every way. I'm glad that you guys are wise enough and not foolish to actually say an amen at that point. I'm really, really pleased about that. That's that's good. That's wisdom from you. You see, in in the Jewish world, that uh, women had no rights. Uh, A woman is just seen as a, a, a husband's possession to do as he willed. And uh, by the time of Jesus, women just didn't take part in public life. And were so heavily veiled, I've been told, that uh, you wouldn't even recognize your own mother. And that was the way things were in the ancient world. So ask the question, now, what did the scriptures teach about women? What did the Old Testament and then the New Testament? Well, even in the Old Testament, women were not despised or (coughs) ill-treated. Marriage was held in high honor. Uh, The the beauty of sexual love was celebrated in the Song of Songs. The capabilities of a good wife were praised in Proverbs 31. Godly women like Hannah and Abigail and Naomi and Ruth and Esther were held up in admiration. In addition to those in national leadership like Deborah. When we come to the New Testament, women are given an even higher status and especially in Luke's Gospel, because you know that Luke's Gospel is the Gospel for the underdog. And women were underdogs in a patriarchal society. And in Luke's Gospel, we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, and Anna the prophetess, and the widow of Nain, and the woman who came into the house of Simon the Pharisee and washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus cast out seven demons, and the widow with two small coins, and Mary and Martha, and the women who gathered around the cross when Jesus was crucified. And it was to women that Jesus first appeared. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And Jesus also revealed himself to Mary outside the tomb. And then we read about the disciples, uh, including women, were joined together in prayer. Uh, in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then we also read that Paul's first convert in Europe was also a woman. Can any of you tell me who that was? Lydia. Acts chapter 16. Paul's second... uh, Sorry, Luke's second letter. Now, Jesus more than any other person at any other time in the history of the world has restored dignity to women. Let's get that right, okay? That is important. And the Apostle Paul 
followed in the footsteps of Jesus. And he taught in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is one of the great truths of the Christian faith. That people of all races and all classes and both sexes, that they are equal before him. That God has no favouritism, that he has no discrimination. And Paul is saying here, with this verse, that people are made different, but they are made equal. You know, there were differences between Jews and Gentiles. There were cultural differences, physical differences, between slave people and free people. There were... um, Political differences, you could say social differences, differences between men and women, but equal in their standing before God. There's no question ever of one being inferior to the other. They are equal. And I think it's really important, you know, before we just jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this very, very difficult chapter for us to understand, that we understand something of the scriptural backdrop here. You know, given the the, the cultural background to the ancient world where women were treated as inferior, some of the stuff that Paul talks about in this chapter is astonishingly radical. In verse 5, it's clear that Paul was happy for women to pray and prophesy in meetings. That was astonishing in the ancient world. Although he did request that their heads would be covered. And we'll come back to that in a few moments' time. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the equality of women. And this is what they say. Verse 11, But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman. And everything comes from God. And what Paul is doing there, he is showing the complementary roles of men and women. That God created woman out of man, out of the first man, Adam. And ever since, men have been born of women. They need one another. There is interdependence, there is mutuality. Peter Lombard, the Bishop of Paris in the 12th century, once said that Eve was not taken from the feet of Adam to be his slave, nor from his head to be his lord, but from his side to be his partner. Okay. So what's this fuss all about then? In that, why was Paul needing to write the words that he wrote to the Corinthian church? And why did Paul say that women need to cover their heads um, when they come to pray or prophesy? And what relevance has this got for today? And should women wear hats to church? And should guys not wear baseball bats and beanies? Baseball bats? Baseball caps? <laughs> Don't bring your baseball bats in either. <laughs> so, what on earth has this got to say to us today? What, what's this all mean? You see, the, there was a problem at Corinth, and this problem at Corinth was essentially cultural. There were two cultural backgrounds which were colliding. And they, were pro- and they were probably causing some upset and division within the church. Jewish men worship, uh, Jewish women rather, worshipped with their heads covered. And to have your head uncovered for a Jewish woman suggested that you had a loose morality. On the other hand, Greek women 
might have worshipped without head coverings. So firstly, to the men, Paul says, guys, don't cover your heads. Because in the culture of Corinth, men uncovered their heads when they were in worship, signifying their submission as men to whatever deity that they were worshipping in Corinth. And all Paul is saying here is, show proper respect for Christ, which is in accordance with your own culture and customs. That's what he's saying. Nothing more than that. Show proper respect for Christ, which is in accordance with your own culture and customs. In other words, be culturally aware. Make sure that you're not in that place where you're offending others or acting as a stumbling block. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Don't be a stumbling block. That's the thing that we've been talking about the last three weeks. Not to be a stumbling block, not to get in the way. Well, what about women then? Well, let's be clear about this. When Paul is speaking about head coverings, he wasn't speaking about hats. Okay? In those days, women didn't wear straw hats, felt hats, feathered hats, or fur hats. But what they wore was something called a yashmak. And only the eyes and the forehead were left uncovered and a respectable woman would never be seen without it. And a yashma kept her beauty and charms only for her husband, that she remained unnoticed by other men. Now a woman who was not wearing this veil was thought to have loose morals because the veil signified that the woman was both devoted to and submitted to her husband. So when Paul says here that a woman who prays or prophesies without her head covered dishonours her head, he doesn't mean that she dishonours this thing on top of her shoulders, her head. But what he is saying, she dishonours her husband and shows him no respect. She is acting like an immoral woman. And Paul says, and we'll come back to the meaning of all this in a moment, let's just have a look at the text. Paul says that she may as well if that's what she's doing, she may as well have her hair shaved off. And in ancient society, a woman with a shaved head meant that she had been publicly disgraced, that she had committed some shameful act. And Paul's logic is this, that if you're going to abandon your head coverings when you get together, you may as well go the whole way and shave all your hair off. Look like a prostitute, if you will. That's what he was saying. And Paul's concerns here were far deeper than the length of a person's hair, whether it be short for men or long for women, or what they wore on their heads when they came to worship. Paul's concerns were much, much deeper than that. Paul's concerns were not so much dealing with externals, but Paul was dealing with internals. He was dealing with attitudes of the heart. Because it would appear that some of the women in Corinth were enjoying their newfound freedom in Christ. They were liberated. Christ has set them free. They were free to eat meat offered to idols if they wanted. They were free to discard their head covering, so they thought. They were free in Christ. And Paul shows them that even though they were free, they shouldn't offend others. They shouldn't be a stumbling block to them. They should live their lives 
for the glory of God. It's exactly the same place as we finished last week in our talk. And you see, these women were actually, by not wearing coverings over their head, in ancient society, in the city of Greece 2,000 years ago, in the city of Corinth, Greece, 2,000 years ago, they were disrespectful and they were um, really offering a stumbling block before Jewish women who dressed differently. They were being disrespectful to their husbands by giving the impression to everybody who saw them that their husbands were married to women with loose morals. Now, in Britain today, our culture is very, very different to first century Corinth. And if you're a woman, you don't normally wear a yashmak to signify your submission to your husband. And we need to be careful, you see, because sometimes we can confuse principles which are eternal. Principles which are for all, all generations, in all places and all cultures, and we can confuse those with, with things which are merely cultural or local practices, like the wearing of yashmaks, or Paul's words about having short hair if you're a guy, or long hair if you're a woman. And Paul clearly defines God, God's order of things in verse 3. It's not only something for the Corinthians, but it's an eternal principle. And he says these words, Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you've spent any time this week looking at this chapter, I hope, hope you have, I do encourage you to, to read in advance, because I think you'll get far more out of Sunday mornings to do that. This is incredibly confusing. Paul is confusing. How many of you find Paul confusing on times? My word. So the rest of you don't. I will one day come and sit at your feet and learn from you. Because I do, I find it incredibly confusing on times. You see, Paul, on the one moment, he is speaking about heads in the, the literal sense. You know, this thing on top of your shoulders. Put on a covering on your head. And the next minute, he is talking about heads in a metaphorical sense. That the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man. And that's confusing, but it becomes then even more confusing than that because some scholars are divided on what is meant by this metaphorical head. Some believe that this head that he is speaking about here has, is about authority. You know, we... Um, use that in terms like head teacher, head waiter, head chef. So when Paul says that the head of woman is man, he means that he has authority or control over his wife. And some people believe that. And other scholars believe that this word head actually means source. So the, the man is the source of the woman. That is, Eve was taken from Adam's side. Another reason why this is actually quite confusing is that the Greek words for men and woman, man and woman, are the same for husband and wife. So it begs the question, which one is Paul talking about here? I'm sorry we've sort of just sort of delved into sort of, uh, uh, this, is, this is pretty technical stuff here. But whatever Paul meant by the word head, 
The one thing he was not suggesting is that women are inferior. Otherwise, he, in the same breath, would be saying that Christ is inferior to God, the Father. And he wasn't saying that. Because we read in Philippians chapter 2, which tells us very clearly that Jesus was equal with God and he voluntarily submitted himself to his Father's will. Jesus was equal with the Father, but his role was different. The important thing here for us is to understand that Paul doesn't really... The main lesson isn't all about what people were wearing or what they were not wearing when they came to worship. But Paul was most concerned, I believe, about the attitude of heart. And they are not wearing a head covering was actually evidence of something much deeper that was wrong in Corinth. So what was it that Paul was really getting at here? Well, the first thing that these women were certainly not sensitive to their culture. And their lack of sensitivity might have actually brought the gospel message into disrepute. Let me tell you a story that I heard many years ago. It was a story about two single lady missionaries who went off to some country uh, to share the gospel and they failed to see uh, any spiritual breakthrough in the country that they went to. As hard as they tried and as hard as they worked and as fervently as they prayed, they saw absolutely no spiritual fruit at all. And they came home to their home country feeling rather dejected The next missionaries that went out to that same mission field were a married couple. And they had great success in that same country. Many people came to faith in Christ. And then one day, the second couple, the married couple, they learned the reason why the two single female missionaries failed. And the reason was this. Every morning, those two single lady missionaries drank citrus, uh, a citrus drink on the veranda of their property as people were walking past, going to work, going about their day's chores. Every single morning they drank this citrus uh, juice, not realising that locals drank the same drink as a kind of morning after pill. And everyone in that village asked the question who are these single women having affairs with? They have to take morning after pills every morning so they must be raving it up. (laughs) Who are these secret men who are never seen leaving their homes? We'll have to keep an eye on our husbands and our sons. Yeah? You see, what you've got there is an insensitivity to culture. And that can have disastrous effects. And these women in Corinth, by not wearing a head covering, were actually hurting others and hurting the gospel message. And their attitudes were not submissive to their husbands. And incidentally, this word on submissive or submission, uh, let's spend a few moments on that. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 5 in far more detail than he does here in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says there that wives must submit to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, and men must love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. 
Now, many people sort of do detours around that scripture and try to, you know, so what is that saying? What's that saying for today? What's this word mean, submit mean? Well, again, let me just say that it doesn't mean having control over or supremacy or surrender or inferiority or superiority. Paul writes that a woman, that a wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, the woman is said to uh, submit. The man is said to love. And yet they're two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. What does submit mean? To submit to someone is to put someone else's needs before your own. What does love mean? To put someone else's needs before your own. Okay, we're saying the same thing here. And that is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, to submit is something that we as Christians should all be about. Because to submit means to have a servant heart. It is to submit ourselves to God. It is to submit ourselves to one another. It is to submit ourselves to those who have no faith that we can reach them for Jesus. And just a message, if I may, to you guys. If you love your wives in the same way as Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, I don't think any woman in the world would have a problem submitting to such a godly lead as that. Just a thought. Your endeth lesson one. I say this is a chapter focused on worship and practices within worship, but it's very much in two halves. So we come to verse 17. Here we read that the early Christians shared a meal that was known as the agape, the agape meal, the love feast. And the agape feast was a lovely custom It was really like a a bring-and-share supper, potluck supper, that food was brought by various members of the congregation and then it was pooled, they sat down to have a meal together and it was a wonderful way of not only nourishing themselves but also nourishing Christian fellowship. And the, the Corinthian church had within it the rich people and poor people, slaves and free people and uh, there were those who could bring plenty of food, could bring plenty of food to, um, Uh, share with others and there were some who couldn't bring very much at all and probably for the slaves and there were slaves as part of this congregation it was probably the only one square meal that they would have in in the entire week but sadly something went very wrong with this love feast, this agape this wonderful opportunity to share and to nourish Christian fellowship turned into cliques and divisions within the church so what happened? what happened? But Paul says here that they lost the art of sharing. The rich came in and ate the food that they brought with them in exclusive little groups, hurrying through it in case they'd have to share. The poor brought next to nothing in. And in this meal, which was a common meal, you had those who were eating the equivalent of T-bone steaks and caviar and drinking best wine, and the others on the other side were perhaps with a jam sandwich and a glass of water. And this practice made Paul's blood boil. 
This was a meal that should have given evidence that the church was the place where barriers had broken down. For in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, they're all one. But instead of demolishing the barriers between the rich and the poor, between the slaves and the free, this agape feast actually aggravated the differences and the poor were left hungry and the rich, well they had their fill and some of them even got drunk. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts this uh, in the message. And he says, And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating the church? Why would you actually shame the poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this. And I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. You see, what was happening here was that the rich people were shaming and embarrassing the poor. They only thought of themselves. They didn't think of anyone else. This week I was reading a story by... uh, an American pastor by the name of Warren Wearsby. He wrote a book on 1 Corinthians and he tells this story of a Sunday school picnic that he was aware of. And in this picnic, (coughs) they were playing a whole number of games. And one of the games were just raw eggs. And um, there were two people who were standing quite close to each other and they would throw and catch it. They did their best trying not to smash this egg. And then they would stand a little bit further away and then try it. And then it was a bit further away. And then, and it was, as you can well imagine, you know, sort of by the time that you've gone a, several metres away from each other, eggs were smashing and it was quite hilarious. And then two of the Sunday school children, a little brother and sister, saw what was happening, could hardly believe their eyes, and came up to the organiser of the event and said, would you mind if there are any eggs left over at the end of this, if we could take them home? You see, the children were from a very poor family and the game organiser very wisely brought an end to that game long before it would normally have finished. There was no way that they wanted to hurt and offend poor children. The church at Corinth cared very little about shaming or embarrassing the poor. They only thought of themselves. And that's why Paul rebukes them in verse 20. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You see, by their discrimination and gluttony, they were doing more harm than good. Now, obviously, their practice was bad in itself, but it was made far, far worse because the Lord's Supper, the communion, was actually shared at the same time as they met together for the agape meal. I think there's something particularly lovely in sharing uh, the Lord's Supper in this way, where there's the social and the spiritual side by side. But the typical evening would be You know, they would bring their food in, they would bring their cucumber sandwiches and Welsh cakes and quiche. You can't have a Christian event without quiche, you know this, don't you? And uh, a bottle of plonk. They chatted informally, they got out their primitive versions of a guitar and a violin and a flute. And then somebody suggested that they sing a song together, maybe one of the ancient songs of King David, one of the Psalms. Somebody might prophesy, one of the teachers would have taught on the subject showing how the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Christ. And then they broke bread and shed wine together at the Lord's Supper. There were no hymn books, no video projection. 
no fixed liturgy, no amplified sound, no special buildings, no clergy. And there was no sharp division between the supper party and the Lord's Supper. So much that they got right, I believe, such as the informality that have communion following an agape feast would be a very deeply moving experience. But there were things that they got wrong as well. There were divisions. They were self-centred. And there was a careless familiarity about them as they took of the Lord's Supper. And there Paul gives them a number of guidelines. Guidelines that he had previously given them. Guidelines that he had received from the Lord about taking and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Firstly, he said, you are to look up, or look, look back rather, in verse 23 and 25. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, he, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. You see, the centre of the Christian faith is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was to be remembered, he did not ask to be remembered for his great teaching. He did not ask to be remembered for his miraculous work and miracles and raising people from the dead he did not ask for a monument to be built for him but he asked to be remembered for his death and Jesus said that it was on the night that he was betrayed and that as many of you will know was Passover night it was the night when Jewish people celebrated the great victory uh, of a day gone by when they were released from the cruel bondage of Egypt and for those of you that want to look at that, you can find that story in Exodus chapter 12. And on that occasion, it tells how God led the Israelite nation out from Egypt into the promised land. And they had to sacrifice a lamb and put blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. And when God's destroying angel passed by that night, only the, ones, the only ones who were safe were those who were under the blood. And every year, that event was celebrated and it's still celebrated by Jews today. The time that the angel passed over. You see, on Passover, the Jews celebrated deliverance of their nation from bondage. And Jesus used this Passover meal to convey a deliverance which caused the original Passover to pale into insignificance. It was a deliverance from guilt and sin. And when Jesus broke the bread, he said, this is my body which is given for you. And when he took the cup of wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't only recall historical fact in our minds, but we recognise why he did it. Look at those two words that I've just put in red. That is why he did it. That is why Christ died upon a cross. It was... For you and for me. This is my body which is broken, which is given for you. There's an old Easter hymn which says, We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. 
We're also to look in. Verse 27 and 28. So anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Now you see that many Christians in Corinth were drinking unworthily. They were selfish. They ignored other Christians. And that is why Paul here encourages them to examine themselves. Again, there's wonderful symbolism here. Because when they were sharing the Passover, well actually two days before the Passover, in a Jewish home, there is a ceremonial search for yeast. And the owner of the house will take a candle and will go around the house looking for yeast, which is a a symbol of evil in the scriptures. In every nook and cranny, in all the cupboards, under the stairs, behind the pots and pans. And there's a wonderful symbolism here with the communion that Jesus says that Christians need to be just as serious about ridding our lives of sin when we take the bread and the wine together. And the Lord's Supper, when we meet and we gather, is normally on the second Sunday of the month. Others of you might meet in life groups as well. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful occasion when we can do some self-examination. So what does it mean to eat and drink uh, the cup unworthily? Some people believe that this is referring to unbelievers taking part in a communion service. I don't think so. I don't think so. I really don't think that Paul has unbelievers in mind here. But Paul is thinking about Christians who are taking the bread and the wine in an irreverent or self-centered manner. Sorry, I didn't put that verse up. Thirdly, we are to look around. Verse 29 and 30. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honouring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have died. So again, what does it mean? Not honouring the body of the Lord. You see, I believe that the Lord uh, is here referring to the church. Who is the body of the Lord? We are the body of the Lord. It's his church. And the Corinthians were taking part in this uh, communion service without recognising the needs of those around them. Some of them were well fed and even drunk. And other them didn't have much at all. They were totally selfish in their actions. And you see, when we take the, the bread and the wine, we're not involved in some individual ceremony here. Because the moment that we take the bread and the wine, it isn't just between you and the Lord, but there's also a horizontal dimension to the Lord's Supper as well. That we are reminded when we take this that we are the body of Christ. But because of their selfishness and discrimination, Paul said that some of these Corinthian Christians were actually being judged by him. Some of them were sick and weak. And some of them had even died when they approached the Lord's Supper. And you see, these are challenging words, very solemn words, to make sure that when we approach our times of communion here, it's great to have whole families sharing communion together, that we don't do so in a a flippant manner. And fourthly, and I'll come into land with this, in verse 26, to look up, we are to continue with the communion service until he comes 
And during communion in the early church, the earliest Christians would shout out in Aramaic. Do you know what word they would shout out? Anybody tell me? Maranatha. Which means, oh Lord, come. And the Lord's Supper, you see, is not a sad, morbid, hopeless memorial. You know, but it is uh, uh, something that we do until that great day when Jesus comes back. When he comes back from heaven in majesty and in power. The first time Jesus came into this world, he came as a suffering servant. He was born in a lowly animal shelter. There wasn't even room for him in the inn. But when he comes again, the scriptures teach us that he will come back in power and glory. He will come back as the all-conquering king. The one who is our king. The king of kings. The one who is majesty. So the, the Lord's Supper is really a simple reminder for until that day, all of us who are his, or rather on that day, we will enjoy another supper. We will enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven where his bride, the perfected church, will be with him forever and ever and ever. It's a reminder that one day we will see him and be like him and that we will be delivered from the turmoil and anxieties of this life. That from our weak human bodies, just in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, or glorious day.